something outside. What is that? Monster X Radio listeners, this is Gunnar Monson, along with my good friend Shane Corson. As you may well know, as, uh, in addition to being one of the hosts of Monster X, I am also the founder of the Sasquatch Coffee Company. Sasquatch Coffee, have you tried it yet? Go to www.squatchcoffee.com and check it out. Get yourself a bag today. With me, as I said, is Mr. Shane Hardcore Corson. Shane, how are you today? Doing well, Sir Gunner. Doing well. Uh, really jazzed about the show today. Uh, somebody, this, this gentleman, somebody that I, I uh, follow and I listen to. I think he's fantastic. He's very knowledgeable um, and uh, and very serious about the subject. So it's today's show is going to be a treat. Uh, and this is this is a two part show. So this week we'll do part one, and the following week will be part two. So I uh, hope you all enjoy this show as much as I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah, I I had the pleasure of getting to uh, hang out with Thomas on Operation Sea Monkey this last year, um, where we went up. And uh, Thomas is a wealth of knowledge. I mean, the guy just uh, can tell you story mm-hmm. after story of, of uh, uh, regarding First Nations people and their their interaction, their uh, how they they perceive uh, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, and uh, um, he plus he spent uh, a good number of years out in in the islands, um, actually living on one of the islands. So um, it's pretty cool, and and I mean I could just sit there like mesmerized listening to him tell his his uh, uh, his stories. So and it was uh, Operation Sea Monkey would not have happened without uh, Thomas and of course Todd Nees, and uh, it was it was a blast. Um, like I said, we of course we did not come back with definitive proof of Bigfoot, but uh, you know we kind of didn't expect that this was kind of a uh, feeling feel it out trip, um, and we got introduced to uh, the area, and uh, you could see um, how um, it would wouldn't be difficult for for a population of of uh, these animals to to live in that area, so. Uh, Pretty cool. So I was ready to uh, bring on our guest, Mr. Thomas right. Seawood. Good afternoon, Thomas. How are you, my friend? Good. Doing good. Nice to hear you again, Gunner. Yeah. So you just got back from an exciting trip, I guess. Oh, man, I don't know where to begin. Everything's just been a <laughs> spinning faster than I can believe in the last 10 days. But we just returned, Peggy and I, from Omaha, Nebraska area from the Omaha tribes 
Indian reservation where we went and met with some fellow North American Indian researchers out there, and it was amazing. That's cool. Well, for the, for folks that aren't familiar with you, can you give us a little bit of uh, your background? Um, I guess start back when I was a kid, I guess. I was born in Alert Bay. From I'm a member of the Kwakwakiwak Nation from northern Vancouver Island, northeastern section, and it's a nation of 16 different tribes with their own names, their own territories, but they all share the common language of Kwakwala. And we call ourselves Kwakwakiwak, which simply means the Kwakwala-speaking people. And I belong to the Mamliacha and the Kwakwakiwak tribes from the mouth of Knight's Inlet and the western section of the Broughton Archipelago, a labyrinth of probably a thousand islands, I guess, between northeastern Vancouver Island and the mainland. Beautiful territory. And when I grew up in Alert Bay, just as a young boy, I remember the going to the potlatches and seeing the dances of the Junahua and the Bukwis. And then walking through town, you'd see the world's tallest totem pole they were carving when I was a young boy. And at the bottom, now that it's standing, there's a Junahua. And the graveyard where a lot of our ancestors are laid to rest right in the downtown Alert Bay on a small little island. There's numerous totems, memorial poles to chieftains that passed away and quite a few of them have the Junahua crest. You know, you see the woman with the sleepy eyes, the puckered up lips, the outstretched arms, large pendulous breasts, and that's our people's uh, name for what most people in Canada call Sasquatch and people in the United States call Bigfoot. We call it Junahua, wild woman of the woods, but it was incorrectly translated, sort of like that lost in translation, I guess you could say, because there's actually a male one as well, but you only see in see it during the potlatch ceremonies when uh, individual hosts a memorial potlatch for a family member, like a father, and uh, when he does all the right things, such as hosting the potlatch, getting the family together to work for a year or more, accumulating things to give out as gifts, their wealth, and then, you know, getting regalia, the dance costumes ready, getting the food ready, and harvesting the food, and and when they have the potlatch, they put the male Junahua with a mustache on his face, and it's to acknowledge that he's upheld his role and duties, and now he becomes the chief of the family clan. And it's quite the quite something to see when you go in a big house and you see all these massive cedar posts carved holding up the roof beams, and this massive cedar building like a rectangle, and you know, 800 people sitting in there with their traditional attire on, and every one of those posts and beams are all beautifully carved of crest figures of the tribe from the region where that big house is. And you see on the dance floor the Junahua dance being shown according to the family's interpretation to their crest and their story. And every potlatch you go to, you see different Junahua dances. Some might have a basket on their back. Some might be without a basket some might have a baby one with them and some masks are massive some big some of the families i've seen the huge shunaka masks so it's pretty amazing it's unique culture i came from and of course it was a commercial fishing village and i was uh, born into a commercial fishing family so i worked my way up 
during the summer seasons on commercial fish boats. And then when I got out of high school, I worked my way up to the bridge of a fish boat. Well, most of my younger, most of my life was a commercial fisherman, so I traveled all over coastal British Columbia. Of course, you're sitting there talking to other tribes from throughout British Columbia's coast and, you know, non-band native people, but they live on the coast and you hear the stories about the creatures and all the different interpretations from the different tribes throughout it. And it was always intrigued me. And I'd hear the stories or ask the questions. And, and then I just sort of had an interest for it. And when the fishing collapsed in uh, 1995, I guess, you know, we had no jobs. We had no fishery to go to. And I had a $60,000 debt for a net that I couldn't pay for. So I just thought, you know, I can't stay out in the concrete world. There's no fishing on the summer season, and mm. the sea kayaking is getting pretty big, and my family, my band, my tribe had sent me in to be a watchman a few years prior in our abandoned Indian village known as Village Island, otherwise famously incorrectly known as Mama Lalakula, Village of Alas Potlatch. We actually call it Mimkwamlis, the village with the rocks and the islands out front. And as far as the last potlatch, it's hardly that. It's a site that in 1921, a lot of our people went to prison for celebrating the potlatch because it was banned. And the government confiscated quite a bit of our people's treasure, our masks, costumes, talking sticks, copper shields. It was a nasty thing that took place because of a potlatch in that village. But our people in 1951, when they legalized potlatching once again because it was not put into the second edition of the Canadian Indian Act, so my grandfather and other leaders saw that it was legal once again, and a tustu, to rise again, happened. They began to openly celebrate potlatch without the fear of going to prison or having their regalia confiscated, and the government agents that thought they'd eradicated our ancient ways, our laws, our, you know, basically our religion, I guess you could say, in the old times. And the unification tool of a nation to keep it strong is one of the superpowers of the coastal First Nations for hundreds, if not thousands of years. It did, I don't like to use the word revived. I like to use the word that it came out of hiding because we'd hit it mm. through the banning of the potlatch days. And once again, the Junochas came out and... Uh, also the book was, and I noticed on the banner you put a picture of me in my book was outfit. Well, the book was, yeah. and that's one of the things I'm trying to clarify with everything is for generations, a lot of people have thought the book was is the Sasquatch to our people. It is not. The mm -hmm. book was is from the spiritual realm. It's a small bipedal creature with hair, um, has uh looks after the ghost world it moves very quickly and fast and it comes out onto the beach at low tide at nighttime and harvests its favorite food known as jolly cockles a type of shellfish like a clam and it's uh, very good to eat and of course the bakwas comes out for that but like i said the bakwas is a whole different thing altogether it's something in the spiritual realm and it's the Jonah, a male and female, that is our equivalent of what people call Sasquatch and Bigfoot. And that's how I got my interest. And when I went out after the cra during the crash of the commercial fisheries, and I went out and started doing native cultural tours and being a watchman and building campsites and doing different things to generate my revenue, 
I was living out in the mouth of Knights Inlet in my traditional territories. And uh, in the early 90s, we heard something, smelled something behind our trailer that we'd brought onto the beach there and uh, put up there for our accommodation, built a little addition. And then in the early 90s, we went in with, uh, before the crash, I went in with my commercial fish boat and anchored out. And for almost an hour and a half, we were, I guess you'd say, gifted to enjoy being watched and prowled around by. And a curious couple of junokas came out to the beach, and we put them on our spotlight from the commercial fish boat and lit them up. And uh, it was amazing to see these two Bigfoot on the beach. And uh, after 25 minutes, they wouldn't move. We shut the spotlight off because we didn't want to kill my battery. And they moved into the bush and pushed the rotten tree down. And you could hear them walk through the bush. And they whistled, chirped. And, and then after about an hour of running my motor to keep my battery, bring my batteries charged again because that spotlight draws quite a bit of juice, it, the big male came out again. And it actually walked along the beach about, I guess, probably 50 yards at the most, 60 yards, I guess from my boat and paralleled it as anchor and all I remember is how big that bloody thing was in the moonlight and I was crouching as I was walking until one of my crewmen pointed at it and said what the beep is that and that thing stood up and I'll never forget the long hairs hanging off its left arm when it stood full up and I was just like wow that thing's huge it strode down the beach went into the bush we hit it with a spotlight again as it was going into the bush and then it whistled really high pitched and then there was a you know, higher pitch like almost like a female type voice whistled back and we could hear them going through the bushes and the slough and that was our experience and that's what really tweaked my curiosity to find out what the heck those things are <laughs> it's absolutely uh fascinating stuff yeah you know and and to kind of get back a little bit to how you got into this i mean you you uh you also been a you're a former grizzly bear guide uh you did a lot of volunteer uh you were watching for uh logging camps uh oh yeah during like the winter shutdown yeah that's i mean that's yeah stuff, but. when the crash came to the commercial fishing it's you know i remember I used to sit there and you know it's just it just drags at you you want to be on a boat and and you can't do it because the you know, a lot of the boats were uh, taken away. Licenses were doubled up, they called it, meaning you have to have two licenses on your seine boat. Now, the commercial fish, salmon, and herring seasons, that was the same thing. And, you know, it just got really political with our government. So I went in to be the watchman and do the tourism, and I met this guy with a yacht. He was a commercial guide outfitter in the region of my territories and other tribes that are neighboring tribes. So, he hired me as assistant bear hunting guide, and I ended up becoming his head guide, and specialized in black bears and grizzly bears and uh, black-tailed deer. And we did some fishing as well. But, you know, I was summer in the village island doing the native tours. September, I was on his yacht doing the hunts until, I guess, first week of December. And then I would go to print, go to Campbell River and cash in all my loot and, We'll get drunk for a day or two and have some fun and let out some steam and I jump on a float plane and fly deep into the inlets where I just came from from hunting and all the loggers are boarding the air float planes flying out for the winter shutdown and 
I'd have a 60-man camp with three big barges all to myself with a bunch of pickup trucks and 12-passenger aluminum crew boats and everything you need to have fun, get paid to go poke around and look around, clam digging, fishing, hunting, and uh, trying to find the big fella. But I never did in the wintertime. It was, I guess I was in the wrong region, but, you know, I'd seen some things and heard some things at night, but I was out in the bush and then... I get, and then I, uh, you know, when I had time off, I just basically go back to bush again, going uh, with my family members and friends. We go commercial food fishing, it's called, go for prawns and everything. So I've always been attached to that bush, and I was one of the pioneers of uh, commercial grizzly bear tours. I hung up my trophy hunting gun after many years, and as I tried being a, I bought a 12 passenger tour boat, got it made brand new in early 90s, and. I figured I'd be a trophy hunting guide for black bear and grizzly bears, and that I'd also be a 12-passenger tour boat bringing people in the inlets to see grizzly bears. And I realized you couldn't do that. You know, the people, if they, when they found out that I was also a trophy hunter, they wouldn't come on my company, so I had to make a choice. And I figured I killed enough bears. I helped up kill hundreds of black bears, and, oh, God, probably close to 30 grizzly bears or more so i just thought enough's enough i've shed enough blood and they're going to disappear because we're moving them too fast and they can't reproduce so put the 338 and the 375 h and hoa and went into eco-cultural tourism where i'd share my native legends and stories that belong to my family with the bear watchers and the orca whale watchers and people who wanted to go see wolves so I got a really good hands-on experience about uh, tourism, and I had a sea kayak camp. I still have it with uh, five cabins that are made of red cedar that look like traditional West Coast native longhouses with orca designs on them, so you can lie in these cedar cabins and look out the windows and see and hear the whales and cruise ships and everything, and then jump on kayaks that we have and take you out exploring and paddling with whales and close to the grizzly bears on the beaches and and then all of a sudden, it just I started thinking about it. And I'm like, you know, there's this BFRO on TV. Boy, that's gaining some huge recognition for the big fellas, Sasquatch Bigfoot. And I said, you know, I look at all these things called podcasts. And, and uh, no offense, you know, to me, the Internet's the most powerful tool in the mm. world. You know, to us Indians, and no offense, we like to call things like that white man's magic. You know, the Internet's magical. You can even use what do you call algorithms to make sure your ad comes up and someone who needs to go whale watching with you. So when I put all those together, I said, you know, Hey, maybe people want to go exploring and see if they can, you know, if not find a Sasquatch Bigfoot, maybe at least they can learn how to go out and actually look for these things properly. Cause most of the guys on TV don't, you know, no offense, but they really don't know what they're doing out there. You know, banging sticks against trees. You don't do that. You know, it's not the way to draw in a Bigfoot. You know, to our people, we're taught, you know, when you hear wood against wood, if you go hunting or harvesting or even go to a beach to clam dig and you hear wood against wood or something's thrown at you or trees are shook, you stop, turn around, go back where you came from, jump in your boat or your vehicle and get out of there and go somewhere else and look around. If you don't see any evidence like cockle shells piled up on the beach or you don't hear wood against wood or trees shaking, mm. then that means they're not there. You can harvest. 
because the one thing with Weepawkwakiwak and all First Nations I'm finding in my journey with Sasquatch Island and Humumu Adventures, we all have the same common belief. Canadian First Nations and American North American Indians, we respect those creatures. We don't ever try to harm them or hurt them or definitely don't ever try to kill them, but we respect them. Here we go, you know, see if we can see them, and that's when, you know, it's, the world's changed now. We have to go out there as Native people and bring people and guide them, you know, and I experienced that in Nebraska here in the last couple of days, and it's the same thing, the respect level. And now I'm doing Sasquatch Bigfoot tours. The one I really want to do, though, is when someone books, and it's called Live Like a Sasquatch. It means we go up to northern Vancouver Island and bring up my double kayak, if it's just one person, and we bring enough food in a dry bag to last us for, you know, four days. When when we get out dropped off by a water taxi or someone's boat out in the Broughton Archipelago, we put our survival food that's in that dry bag, our cell phone in there, and we seal it up and we put it in the compartment. And from that point on, we live like a Sasquatch. Our water comes from out there. Our food comes when the beach is low and we harvest or what we can catch with hooks or traps and what we can harvest in the land. Basically, it's just going out and learning survival skills like a coastal First Nation knows, but also like the Sasquatch knows because that's what he does every day. That's the kind of expedition I like, but we also do walking tours in Seattle, Vancouver, and Victoria called Sasquatch Safaris. And then, of course, we do the day trips, boat trips, you know, all kinds. We're a custom tour company, so someone phones me and goes, ooh, I want to stay in a hotel. I'll do that. I'll find a floating hotel out in the inlet somewhere, and we'll stay there and go exploring. <laughs> Thomas, uh, i got to ask you, you know, you have this real passion for the subject of, of Sasquatch. Do, do other uh, First Nation, First Nation uh, individuals, especially in your circle, do, do they share the same interest? Uh, from my experience over the years, just uh, being here in the United States on the U.S. side, um, a lot of Native Americans, First Nation people, they don't really talk a whole lot about the Sasquatch phenomenon. Well, that's what I found out in November 2016, just, you know, just a few months back. I went to Sasquatch Island. A friend of mine had started that group, and it was in reference to Vancouver Island because all the Sasquatches there, you know, it's the highest concentration of Sasquatch sightings that I know of for an island. <clears throat> and uh, when I went to his group, it said, had a button that said this group needs a moderator so i stupidly i guess clicked the button and became the moderator and i thought okay now that i'm a moderator i said i've been reading all these groups kind of i guess i post things and and i said well first off we're gonna clarify what uh sasquatch to the kwakwakiwak people are and i reached out to one of my second cousins he's i call him my advisor he's actually younger than me but he's a master carver man does he make good but out of respect for him he always says that you like going public i don't like doing that i don't want to talk on your things or anything but he i ask him for advice and private message nowadays and or phone him and he answers me so he's lived in alert bay all his life he's very knowledgeable but i also go to other people and and what I've found is, you know, you got to look at us Native people. You know, we've been marginalized. You know, I'm like, I don't want, want to come across like a whiny Indian because i got no time for whiny people, period. 
you know, things that have happened to us, like the residential school system, the banning of the potlatch, the physical and mental and uh, physical and sexual abuse in the residential schools, the, uh, you know, marginalization where we had to fight for our jobs in the old days, like commercial fishing. And, you know, our people are very apprehensive to talk to the non-natives and always have been and probably will stay like that for quite some time until the marginalization and acceptance is an equal comes to be so when people go in and i've seen it i've seen dr john bindernagel and listen to him he's my scientific advisor and others and they all say that and it's like oh it's like almost like the native people clam up shut up and i'm like yeah it's normal and uh it's because of that and so when i started the sasquatch island took over it and all of a sudden i had 42 members when i took over it in november 2016 so i'm like Okay, got to do like the Mox and Telegraph, I guess, and like a bingo palace. I got to get word out. So I got word out and still do it with the post of the day on numerous sites. And all of a sudden, it just started to snowball. All these people are like, holy smokes, there's finally an Indian that's talking. And you know, I know some of my Native people might say I'm talking too much, but I believe we need to share our stories. Number one, I've heard it too many times in funerals, and people are crying at the funeral or at the wake, and they're... Oh, I should have recorded the stories that he or she had. Oh, they're gone forever. And I've sort of me being, a, you know, looking at history and that. I'm like, this, you know, we have to retain these stories. And so I started, you know, putting Sasquatch Island together. And then all of a sudden I realized I'm like, you know, half these people out there are talking Sasquatch. You're just talking foolishness, you know, especially all this woo-woo stuff about jumping in UFOs and cloaking and... <laughs> jumping through portholes and going up wormholes and mind speaking to people. And I'm just like, wow, this is just a bunch of BS. I'm like, they're just really disrespecting the Sasquatch when they talk like that. And so I sort of took a hardline stance about, uh, you know, we have to take the Sasquatch equation and we have to build a wall that Donald Trump will be proud of separating the woo-woo from the critterist. And I'm a critterist. <laughs> so that thing eats sleeps and poops and pees just like I do and doesn't do anything magical. But out of respect for my fellow First Nations and North American Indians in the United States, the ones that believe in shape-shifting and skin-walking, hey, I totally believe that. That's like, well, I totally believe in the Chonoko. Even if I'd never seen one or heard one or smelled one, I would totally believe in it because our law says that those crests are things that have ha- are out in our world and the Chonoko being in my culture and heritage, according to our law, it means it's a critter. It's out there. And, of course, we have the spiritual realm with other creatures. But just speaking about the critters that are living in, out there with us, well, the sad, the Junichua is, you know, I believe in it. But at the same turn, I'm not going to contaminate it by saying, oh, maybe they jump in spaceships. That's why we can't find them. No. Our stories say they live in an invisible home, that's what we can't find, meaning they camouflage really good up in the mountains or wherever they choose to live. So it's with the Sasquatch Island, it's sort of evolved, and I'm sitting there looking at, you know, people are scratching their heads uh, speculating, oh, maybe they eat this, and maybe they eat that. And I'm sitting there going, you know, you study animals and you hunt bears enough and if you're going to hunt a bear, you got to know what they're eating. you got to know the seasons. you got to know the reason, regional difference in those seasons. Campbell River and Central Vancouver Island, the salmon berries might be online right now because it's the time frame. 
end of May, beginning of June. But if you go 60 miles or 40 miles north or northeast into the inlets because of the shade and the cooler weather, the salmon berries won't come online for another 10 or 14, 16 days afterwards. So you have to know just by looking at the color of the salmon berries and the scrub bushes when you're on a boat or an airplane, you got to know where those high concentrations of proteins are coming on. And then when you're a commercial fisherman, native food fisherman like me, and you know about the hooligans coming in or the herring coming in in March and April in certain regions of the coast and the things are spawning ankle-deep water and you just bend down and pick up these big herring the size of bananas and fill a five-gallon bucket in a few minutes. And then hooligans come in and go to the head of the inlets in end of March, April, earlier in some places further up north, and they just turn these glacier melt rivers black with the millions of hooligans, like a smelt that come in to spawn. And then you have all the bulbs coming online, the salmonberry shoots, the uh, fiddlehead ferns, the salmonberries, the thimbleberries. Your salmon now are showing up, seaweed harvest time. And clams, when's the right time to eat clams? Well, I don't eat them May, June, July, or August. It's chance they're green, they're full of photoplankton, so they taste like that green photoplankton, and it's disgusting. So we, and plus it's paralytic shellfish poisoning, red tide season during the May, June, July, August. So Sasquatches and humans, we don't touch shellfish until September onwards, until April. So everything's a cycle, and I correlated that with Sasquatches in my region, and I started to sit back and listen, compile the reports and all of a sudden, I started going, hey, wait a second here. I'm starting to get a pattern. And then one night, I was sitting there with my wife, Peggy, here in Kent, Washington. And we were just sitting there having a wine, chattering away like a couple of Sasquatches, chatter, chatter, chatter. And we have the map of Pacific Northwest and Southern Bank, British Columbia's coastal region. And I looked at it, and I started talking about the, what I'm seeing with the migration patterns of the Sasquatches going to Vancouver Island in uh, when the snow starts to melt in this time of the year, move up and then start harvesting everything up in the alpines, you know, with the fawn drops with your deer especially. The bears go up there, the black bears. And on the mainland, the grizzly bears follow the retreat in snow because that's where all the ungulates, like your mountain goat, your uh, deer is. And, of course, fawn drop, that's where the high concentration protein is. And then you got all that greenery growing, all those bulbs and herbs and flowers you just look at the grizzly bears up in those alpines and they're just like a weed eater sitting there chomp chomp chomping their way through these meadows and when they get a chance to get a fawn drop or a small fawn they'll go for it so i started looking at it and i'm saying you know sasquatches are doing the same thing they're disappearing in may they're following the same place those bears are going so a apex omnivore has to have high concentration of protein. If you compare a Sasquatch to a grizzly bear and it's 6,500 calories per day, I think minimum a grizzly needs, that's a lot of food you got to chaw down. So started looking at them going up there, no vocalizations down at sea level. And then all of a sudden when our salmon in southern British Columbia, just like Washington State, Puget Sound, start to show up in the rivers and creeks and the shallow waters upriver in mid-August, that's when the Sasquatches come down from the high grounds and they start feeding on the salmon up in the spawning grounds. And then end of September, 
when the pink salmon and the sockeye and a few cohos sort of taper off a bit, you start seeing some of those Sasquatches show up and vocalize in the western Broughton archipelago. And that's why the Chonahua and the carvings, mask and paintings and totem poles, has puckered up lips. Whoop, whoop, whoop. That's the sound of the Chonahua. They're hollering from island to island, then in September, beginning of October. It's no different than a bunch of commercial fishermen walking into a, a bar in one of the ports after a fishery, and they're hollering across to the pool tables to a buddy, and they look over, coming out of the pissers, another buddy, and they're hollering at him. You know, it's no different. You, know, you sit down, you talk. What did you do for the last few months? Where were you? How was life? How was family? Oh, my family, these people passed. And that's what I think the Sasquatches are doing, too. But when me and Peggy were chatter, chatter, chatter like uh, Sasquatches that night, all of a sudden it just went off like a light bulb. I said, son of a bitch, these are the territories of the Kwakwakiwak Nation. You got your Comox, you got your... Clowitzis, your Numgis, your Wallace Quagyoth on Vancouver Island's east shore. And then if you look into the Broughton Archipelago and that whole chain of islands between Vancouver Island and the mainland, you have the Mamliacha, the Clowitzis, the Mumtagila, the Wiwakai, the Wiwakum, the Kwika. And then you look on the mainland and they have territories over there, but there's also the the, the Nachtau, and then there's the uh, um, and I said, we know our boundaries within our tribes. They're painted as pictographs. They're prominent points. Some places are petroglyphs, rock carvings. Some places are geolog- geography marks, like uh, between rivers. And all of a sudden I said, it's almost looking like the Sasquatches have the same tribal boundaries. Their tribal boundaries and the migrations I'm seeing up in the western archipelago and further into the mainland part of the archipelago is correlating in the movement to the tribal boundaries of my people. So that's what I think's happened. You know, it's just speculation. You know, it's just a, I guess you could call it what, a hypothesis or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, that's what I'm trying to prove. I'm, number one, prove those things exist. Number two, then work on at the same time trying to prove that they have these clan boundaries that compare exactly to the Kwakwakiwak tribal boundaries. And, you know, that's something that no one else is doing out there. Everyone else is still trying to find a needle in the haystack in Turtle Island, mainland, North America. You know, we've given the Sasquatch researchers how many generations now since Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin got that beautiful video of that uh, Chonoha. You know, it's Mm -hmm. exploded. But everyone's been out there banging trees against sticks against trees and trail cameras and expeditions, and they haven't come up spades yet that I know of anyway. And uh, I went to see Todd Neese with the American Primate Conservancy with Peggy last year, and him and met him and his wife Diane. And I basically pleaded my case. You know, I need help. I got this big, huge chunk of territory called Vancouver Island Northeast, Broughton Archipelago, the mainland. And, you know, I need help. I need fellow researchers to come help me because it doesn't seem to be working in the rest of North America. Maybe we should go where these things come on the beaches and they holler at night in the end of September and October. And when we hear them whooping away, we can go move in on there with your fancy night vision things and your listening devices. And maybe we can capture one of these guys on video, light them up with spotlights and 
get our conclusive proof. So that's what Operation Why I went and they Todd all of a sudden wanted to start Operation Sea Monkey and then when I heard him and Diane talk about their American Primate Conservancy it was exactly what I want to see. Areas preserved for them and also protection measures for them. So every Tom, Dick and idiot out there with a camel and an automatic gun isn't trying to shoot him because we've got to give him respect. We don't go shoot him. Shoot him with a camera, that's all. Yeah, Thomas, you you know, you speak so matter of fact when it comes to Sasquatch. Why do you think, uh, you know, obviously being the First Nations and being here, you know, uh, for God knows how long uh, in the Americas and everything, but why why do you think other uh, people uh, are, are very skeptical of the subject of Sasquatch and then actually being a, a physical uh, a physical thing, a real thing? Because I took an airplane a couple of days ago from SeaTac Airport to Los Angeles. I got on another one and I flew to um, Omaha, Nebraska, and then we repeated that getting back today. And the whole time it was daylight, and Peggy let me have the window seat. But I'm a smart Indian, eh? I bring my binoculars when I fly on airplanes so I can look down at the mountains and rivers and all that terrain. And going to Nebraska and back, I went over environments I'd never seen before. But I looked down there, I thought, boy, those skeptics, you know. Not only are they silly, but I don't think they've ever been in an airplane during daylight with no clouds and with a pair of binoculars and looked out the window. They're probably watching the video screen or sleeping. I'm looking out the window, looking at all that empty space. There are no human critters down there. There's Sasquatch critters down there and ungulates and bears and raccoons and greenery and fish and creeks and crayfish and freshwater shellfish. And You know, I, when I went to Nebraska, I heard what was in that Missouri River. I'd never, ever seen that river before. And I heard about all these different types of fish in there, and I thought, you know, it's no different than the coast and all that empty area. So that's... A skeptic is a couch surfing opinionist. They got to get on their rubber boots and get out with us Sasquatch researchers and go get muddy a bit, you know. And then they got rights to talk. Most of them, they got no rights to talk. They just squealy opinionists. That's the way I look at it. Uh, well said. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> a breath, a breath of fresh air. I appreciate that. Now, speaking of, you kind of, we just kind of mentioned your trip. Uh, do you mind talking about your trip to uh, Nebraska? Because, you know, when I, when I think of Sasquatch, I'll be honest with you, I don't think of Nebraska, but I'll be honest with you, I've never been there. So uh, I got, I'm got i not going to uh, bag on it because I don't know. <laughs> but you have. Describe your experience and, and why you went out there. Well, the reason, main reason I went out there is because of one of the questions you asked me earlier about uh, why don't the Indians talk, you know. And that's what I'm doing with Sasquatch Island because, it's Sasquatch Island now. This doesn't refer to Vancouver Island. The Facebook group and everything I'm doing, it refers to what us indigenous people of North America have called North America for thousands of years, Turtle Island, because it looks like a turtle with uh, Mexico and the narrow part being the tail, Florida, Flipper, Baja, Flipper, Aleutian Islands of Flipper, Labrador, Quebec, uh, or Newfoundland of Flipper, Hudson's Bay in the north of Canada, and all those islands, the mouth. So Turtle Island is North America to the indigenous people, and always will be. I'm just, because I'm a Sasquatch enthusiast and researcher, and I'm after the native Indian story, I'm calling it Sasquatch Island. So it's referring to North America now. And I want to be the one to go out and finally 
do what I did in Nebraska. I made history. A Canadian Indian journeyed by airplane to Omaha, Nebraska's southeast corner and met with Barry Webster and his brother Derek West, Webster, uh, Webster, a.k.a. Big D, who are Omaha Indians from the tribe, and they have squat, uh, res squatching. That's their thing. They take people out and show them what I'm doing, exactly, but in their traditional territories. And his, history was made this week where a Canadian and a North American Indian research teams got together. And because I'm doing the television show Sasquatch Island, a lot of the television programs, they go rushing into the Indian reserves. Oh, we want to film you for the Sasquatch Bigfoot. Well, right away, you're disrespecting the people. You got the Sasquatch Bigfoot, which is very respected by our people in both countries. But at the same turn, you don't go in there like a Hollywood director and start barking orders that you want this and you want that and you want to see this and film that. Our laws state that you go sit down with them. Basically, you know, this it's a term, but to sit with them and get to know one another. You know, we're joking with each other. You know, Barry was ripping me a new one with all the jokes he was throwing at me and teasing me, but you take it in jest and you laugh along with it. It's just our nature. That's why as Indians got big cheeks. We like to laugh. And, you know, we got to know each other. And Big D, he was, you know, checking me out and then all of a sudden by the end of the few hours we spent with each other all of a sudden we're friends for life now now i can come back after talking to them and i can put the contract together and send it to them and they'll look at it and once they're in agreement to the contract the ink that's on the paper will all sign it and now we have a binding contract now my camera crew goes down there called wild woman productions victoria williams from edmonton alberta who's a Cree and Dene Indian and some Métis in her and with her cousin Amanda who's uh, going to be a co-host and she's Cree Dene and she's just a whip in front of lenses man she's just posing and laughing and she's great and my wife Peggy and we're going to go there and we're going to film them and we're going to get the Aboriginal Indigenous Peoples North American Indian story out produced by Indians and it's going to be done according to our laws, protocols. So when I do go down there, Barry will line up and his brother that I first, before the camera lenses come off, I sit and ask permission of their chiefs and their elders. Once they give the blessing and we know our boundaries and you know what we can and cannot film or places we can and cannot go, I learned when I was down there that the cottonwood, you, they don't cut it down and burn it. The cottonwood is sacred to those people because it's their tree of life. And, you know, simple things like that. Most people don't even think about that. But I'm ensuring all of those protocols and permissions are in place before the lens caps come off. And can you imagine when I do 20 different episodes with different Indigenous people throughout Turtle Island, Sasquatch Island? You know, when I talk to the Seminoles and I go down to San Diego and talk to this other guy who's part of Res Watching, and I go to other corners of Turtle Island... And I film and interact with these the indigenous people. Number one, they're going to be more responsive to open up with me because I'm a fellow Aboriginal and I've covered the protocols. And, you know, some of the people that might be listening to this might be rubbing their hands going, ooh, what a good idea. I'm going to grab my non-Indian camera and my camera crew and I'm going to go rushing off and do what BFRO did. But the what Tom's saying, focus on the Indians. Well, if you ain't an Indian and you don't, 
to have what I've taken me years to compile, a production team, a, you know, a co-host, you know, a good team, you know, you're going to be floundering around like a fish out of water. And that's what's happened to date. And that's why, you know, I've been reaching out with the modern day smoke signal, the internet and social media. And I have some of the big, the biggest names and the indigenous people when it comes to Sasquatch investigations or research or history and stories and legends and even their dancers. You know, I got people lined up that are just chomping at the bit. Oh, can we show our dancers from Northern British Columbia on your TV show? I'm like, absolutely. And, you know, we're going to get out to the living rooms, the laptops and the cell phones of North America and hopefully the world, our story shared by our fellow First Nations to one another. Yes, it's a business venture, but we've done it according to our laws and protocols. And I think you're going to see something that's just going to floor the big Sasquatch community as Sasquatch Island, the Facebook group, already has. Every day I look at the praises I get, and I get all red in the face, embarrassed, because these people are saying things that really, really are nice. You know, it's they're giving me fresh wumps of fresh wind in my sail every morning when I sit down with my cup of coffee, which is Sasquatch coffee, by the way. Don't <laughs> 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 worry, Starbucks for me. you got to have a brother. Sasquatch on the coffee bed. <laughs> yeah, so it's a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's a lot of work. You know, I have a loving wife, Peggy, that, you know, she's totally behind me and she financially helped me get to um, Nebraska. I was actually going to take a bus, and she goes, no, you're not. We're flying out there. And she took a day off work, and off we went. Lo and behold, we the boys there with uh, their operation, after we got meet and greet sort of out of the way and had some put some hot chili in our bellies, at 12, 12 o'clock we headed out to go do some squatching, and one of the vehicles got stuck in the mud because it was pouring rain out there, and boys got it out and we all jumped in and we went up and you know i didn't know what to expect and they brought me out to you know just up from where the cabins are at the campsite for the tribe and you know not even a half a mile away and we stopped on this paved road and i'm thinking you know what the heck paved road car goes by and after that car goes by and they started doing the prayers they were praying in their language and then they translated to English then they explained who they are and uh, Barry and Derek and then they got every one of us to do the same thing to talk to the um, God out here Derek's going to slap me if I don't say the name right Sintanka and said who I was and where I come from in a calm manner and then Peggy did the same and and then Peggy's, you know, we're on this dark road, no lights. One guy had a therm. They told him to keep it off. And uh, I'm sitting there, and there's a ditch on either side of the road, and timber, and oak trees, and rain drips splattering everywhere. And I'm kind of thinking, you eh, know, this is kind of, you know, different. And all of a sudden, you just you heard a little teak. And, you know, it gets, been, gets my attention. And we're listening, and everyone's quiet. And then all of a sudden, it... To me, it was like someone bent down in the forest and a tree that's leaning over, that blew over the wind and broke and maybe maybe four inches thick and it's got most of its root ball now right out of the ground. 
well, if this picture someone bending down and grabbing that small tree blown over, it's probably dry and old. And it tears it out of the ground. You hear that ripping noise and the breaking of roots, and then all of a sudden, kabash, it gets flipped 180. That's what we heard, and it wasn't more than 45, 50 feet from us. And I walked over, and I'm trying to smell and everything. I couldn't smell any. The wind was in our back anyway, so, and then it, you could hear three times where it screwed up. It stepped on something that snapped, but it was definitely bipedal and it was definitely walking super stealth. And then we stayed for another 45 minutes or so, but me and Peggy had been entertaining a fellow friend of ours from Northwest Territories for three days prior to heading to Nebraska, spur of the moment. So we hadn't had any sleep, maybe two, three hours each night. and We were just throttled. At 1.30, I just told Barry, I just said, you know, I'm, I'm nuked. And uh, he's like, yeah, okay. So they dropped, that was me and Peggy off at the cabin. And they went back out, but they never heard anything. It started really raining hard. But I, I went to bed and, you know, Peggy right away, well. And I'm like, oh, absolutely. That was not a deer. They don't have bears down here. That was not a coyote because they were yipping and yapping further south of us. I said, that was... Uh, that was definitely the their big fella. And then it wasn't until yesterday when we left and we were driving out, and I was starting to, as your uh, gunner stated, I have kind of a photographic memory. It's a curse and it's a gift. But anyway, before I went, I did, you know, Art of War, Sun Tzu. You know, you got, we're in a battle here to try to find conclusive proof of these creatures. Well, what does Sun Tzu say? Do your recon beforehand. Do your Send your spies in. Well, I did that. I used white man's magic. I used Google Earth, and I totally combed where I was going. So when I was thinking about it, when we were driving from the Indian Reservation to Omaha to get a hotel room yesterday evening, I was overlaying all of that area and what I seen driving the highway now, and I thought about it, and I said, you know what? That's a unique enclave. That's not a migratory clans or clans of Sasquatches. They're semi-migratory, but they're landlocked all around them are non is outside of the indian reserve is farmers and what have those farmers done chainsaw backhoe bulldozer they've just eradicated what used to be forest swamp and must and uh you know groves of grasses and that it's gone so the omaha indian reservation is an enclave sure they do their own farming in there but there's a lot of vast tracts of oak and elm and cottonwood and uh, evergreen areas they said and then when I started thinking about it and I started piecing all the data together I can honestly because I want these boys to get bookings number one they they need socioeconomic prosperity on that Indian reserve like every Indian reserve throughout North America so I want people to phone them up and go out with them because you're going to go to an area where it's one of the second area I've ever seen, but it's the best area where I've seen Native Indian habituation of these creatures. And it's not the human against the animal. It's the animal to the human. Because where they took us, I believe what the family groups are doing, it's just like it's going to take me days to talk about it all, but that's for Barry and Derek to share. But 
they've had so many sightings down there. It's just amazing. The audio I listened to, the pictures I saw, I was just floored. And they've had other researchers go there, but they, you know, they weren't comfortable to give them the goods, the good stuff, the, the platinum package. Well, Peggy and I got the platinum package, and I am going back there. We're going to contract up. We're going to go back and film it and release what they have. It's bloody amazing what they have down there. And uh, I'm going to be very honored to be able to share their story with the world when we film it all and release and they release their stuff through the television show. You know, they've asked for my help. I will bend over backwards and I will give it to them. And hopefully I'll help them with their socioeconomic prosperity for that Indian Reserve because every reserve needs it. I want to see a day where we have 30 tribes throughout Canada and the U.S. sharing through expeditions our stories, our culture, our history, our perspectives, our sightings. I probably heard over 40 different sighting encounters in the last two decades that come from that area. And I'm not going to share it on the podcast because they've got to wait for release, but it's they're, they're number one. Like, it's just unreal what I've heard down there. You know, we stopped with one guy, and he's like, oh, I don't know much about it. And the next thing you know, he's talking, he, you know, we're just small talking. He showed me where he had one in his backyard, and we're about to leave, and it's just starting to rain. And all of a sudden, he goes, what tribe are you from? I said, well, I'm from the Kwakwakiwak, northern Vancouver Island. He goes, hey, you're the guy. I heard you on a podcast. And he names the podcast. I did a couple, three episodes on. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. And he's like, oh, oh, just wait. I want my picture with you. I got to get my wife, too. And he goes into the house and calls his wife. And his wife comes out. And she's kind of shy. And as soon as she found out who I was, she's just beaming, smiling. It was an hour and a half later in the pouring rain with her grandkids running around and splashing in the puddles and all of us standing there. And, this man, her husband, I don't know that many stories. He sat there and just kept popping story after story after story. And, you know, I'd ask him, oh, what was it like, you know, when you were a young boy? And then he's going back to when they were riding horses. And I tell you, that place is, they got some critters down there. And it's, they're habituated back and forth. They're both habituating each other. And, my dad always taught me, like when I asked him years ago, I said, what do I do if I run into a Sasquatch? Just speak Kwakwala to it. Just tell them who you are, what you're up to, and uh, you'll be all right. They're doing that. They're speaking their tongue to those creatures. And things are happening that is just, we haven't heard about it yet from anyone. You know, sure, the BSers come out with the gifting and the things and, ooh, big hairy Raven speaker said this to me and so forth. Yeah, it's a bunch of hokum. This is truly happening. They are habituating and the creatures are habituating the humans down there. And it is flipping amazing. I, first time I jumped in an airplane to go on a Sasquatch expedition, I came up spades. You know, Peggy was shaking and trembling. She was so scared and that thing flipped that log. And uh, we'll be back. And it's, it's just an example of what I wanted to do with Sasquatch Island back in November when I was sitting there with my coffee at night, scratching my head going, what do I post? What do I write about? And as it started coming and it started building, and especially since 
March, and I started doing posts of the day, but I share it on t- almost 30 different other groups. And sure, I get the odd flathead every now and then comes on there with a bubba comment, uh, oh, what's his post of the day, blah, 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 Indian stuff. And I just throw it onto the group and go, oh, if you guys don't want me sharing my post of the day on this group, I'll leave. And all of a sudden, it's a tidal wave of people. No, don't you leave. You keep doing it. So I've achieved and am achieving what I wanted. I want conclusive proof of the Sasquatch. But like all those sailors that were lost coming from Europe and China and Japan, as soon as they hit Turtle Island, they scratched their head and go, oh, we're going to die in there. We don't know our way through that unknown land. So what did they do? They did the wise thing. They hired an Indian guide. And Lewis and Clark made it to the mouth of the Columbia River with Sacagawea and Carboneau. And Alexander Mackenzie, with his Cree Indians, made it all the way from the St. Lawrence Seaway right to the mouth of the, um, with the what do you call Bella Coola area. And he went and was the first guy to ever paint graffiti on our rock walls out in the coast of British Columbia. And I can go on with thousands of examples of smart European descent people who hired Indian guides. So if we're going to find these Sasquatch Bigfoot and we look back at what's happened in the last few generations, not much. No spade. We haven't come up with spades yet, other than Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. So now we got to sit there and look at what I'm doing and say, scratch your head and go, hey, Tom's on to something. Maybe we should hire an Indian guide. They do expeditions, or maybe we go to our local Indian reserve and go up to the tribal office and knock on the door after we ask a few tribe members where that office is and go in and say, can we talk to your chiefs, please? Oh, sure, I'm a chief. How can I help you? I'd like to hire some of your people if it's possible to hopefully find conclusive proof of Sasquatch Bigfoot. Oh, yeah, you better go talk to my cousin Johnny over there. He sees them all the time. They're always raiding his chicken coop because we live (laughs) with them. You know, we accept them. Like, people challenge me all the time. Well, there's no such thing as a Sasquatch Bigfoot. And I look at them and I go, you believe in albino humans? Because I sure do. It's scientific fact. And all of a sudden, the skeptic always goes, oh, yeah, I live in Chicago. I've seen a couple albino humans before. They don't like sunlight. They wear sunglasses and big hats. Oh, I see. Well, I've never seen an albino human in my life, but I believe in them. And you've never seen a Sasquatch or Bigfoot in your life, and you don't believe in them. So one of us here is silly, and one of us here is pretty smart. I think I'll take the smart road here. See you later. That's how we have to look at it. That's the way I look at it, you know. And uh, besides that, someone who tells me that as a skeptic, they're telling me that the Kwakwakiwak people and my ancestors that are, I've laid to rest and others that died before I was born, they're telling me when they say Bigfoot Sasquatch ain't true. I just I feel like popping them one in the nose and making them bleed double because they're saying <laughs> your ancestors are full of BS. They're lying because we know there's a Junahua, male and female. So don't ever go to an Indian as a skeptic. You know, you know, if you hear those stories about us Indians beating up the non-natives, you're going to be one of them. You know, treat us with respect like we treat the Sasquatch with respect. Don't ever come and be a skeptic and think you're holier than thou and you're like Jesus and walk on water because you don't believe in these creatures because they don't exist. They exist. Just jump on an airplane and go at 30,000 feet with a pair of binoculars and look at all that empty land and tell me there's not creatures down there that we haven't found yet. 
That's how I look at it. Thomas, I'm going to have to jump in here because we are out of time. Uh, we This is part one of a two-part, at least a two-part uh, it talk conversation with Thomas Seward. That's all we're doing. That's not I, enough I can, time. We need six parts. <laughs> I was telling I was telling Shane it could be twelve parts because you you just have a, I mean and and what you're doing with with Sasquatch Island is is totally unique. It hasn't been done before and it's it's fascinating and I can't wait to to watch all the episodes. So we will oh, yeah, be back. Just, and, Go, Go to the Facebook group and ask to join. And don't forget, you'll see it on there anyway, humumuadventures.com. Just think of Happy Cow Cow, H-A-M-O-O-M-O-O, adventures.com. We do Sasquatch expeditions and adventures. Um, the Seattle Sasquatch Tour, take advantage of it. There's a lot of Sasquatches in downtown Seattle in the concrete jungle there, and I'll go tell you everything about the Juno Claw and everything else that I know about those creatures. And you'll even see my two dances. i got both costumes here. Plus, it, and I can I can vouch absolutely that Thomas is a blast to be around, and, and um, he will store you up. Let me tell you, he has uh, had his own personal encounters and, and stuff. We've got to go. We will be back next week with part two of what will probably be a 16 or 17 part series by the time we get done. Uh, Thomas, <laughs> thank you so much, my friend, for joining us, and uh, okay. thanks everybody for listening to Monster X Radio. We'll be back next week. Have a great week until then. Go in peace, all. Bye. Thank you for joining Monster X Radio.